0: How many are glad this morning that God loves you? Yes. You know what is incredible about the creator of the universe loving us, like knowing everything about us, yet still choosing to be madly in love with you, is that in turn we get to love others in a healthy way. We get to see what true love looks like. I'm sure that you've seen people, possibly you've been that person yourself, that has desperately wanted to love others, but you've only experienced such dysfunctional love, such love of manipulation and control that you actually don't know how to give genuine, authentic, God-honoring and God-fearing love. Well, today we're in part three of Life Hacks, and I'm really excited about today's topic in particular. We've spent the last few weeks talking about Uh, simple ways to find spiritual breakthrough in our world. And today I want to take you back to our text, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14a. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I love that the Lord declares things over our life and he speaks hope over our life. Yet we don't have this thing called heaven prime. Where we just place an order for joy and it shows up on a doorstep. Or we we just place an order for the things of God and it, it just shows up. There actually is required a partnership to unlock the things of heaven. not. Not that you have to earn it, but we do have to come into alignment and agreement with what God has said over us. Can I get a good amen? God could set a filet mignon before you at the dinner table of your life, but if you never pick up a fork and a knife, you will never digest and consume that which the Lord has already made available to you. And I wonder how many of us, we push back from the table not understanding that God has already um, created increase in our realm and in our world, and we fail to step into the promised land that he has for us. And I'm using the three chairs here this morning. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you probably know what they are, but I'll do a two minute recap on the chairs. But first, let's ask the Holy Spirit to move among us. God, we come before you today. God, I thank you so much for the people that are in this room. God, I call them friends, I call them family. I thank you so much that you are moving among us. We we just ask that you would speak to the very darkest parts of our heart, the deepest parts of our soul. God, that you would stir the waters deep within us. God, that we would long for you, that we would hunger and thirst for you like never before. God, I know that there's breakthrough in this room. It's not an accident, the people that are sitting in this room It's not an accident. You didn't know that they were going to be here today. You've been planning for their arrival. And so, God, I thank you that this is a moment of destiny for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Let the church say amen. Amen. Well, the first chair over here to your right is a chair that I have used for people that do not know Jesus Christ. They've not said yes to a relationship with him. Uh, How many of you know the name of this chair? You can shout it out. Conflict. Conflict Conflict is the name of this chair. These people, um, basically, they've just not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And unfortunately, that means that should they die, uh, their eternity would be spent in hell. Now, I'm not a hellfire brimstone kind of preacher, but the reality is hell is very real. It's not a philosophical or it's a philosophical place where we just think, oh, hell on earth, you're not going to be happy here. No, hell is real. It's a real place that we spend eternity if we don't say yes to Jesus. I mean, that would be enough, I think, for me to say yes to Jesus, but I don't ever like to convert anyone based out of fear. Because the reality is it's the kindness of God and the love of God that draws people to repentance. Like if you just say yes to Jesus so you don't go to hell, you're totally missing out on the gospel, the good news. Jesus came so that you and I could live a life of of freedom and it's conflict. Now, maybe, maybe your life is all put together and you're making good money and your family is good. That's fine. I'm not talking about the exterior circumstances of your life. Your conflict may look incredible. I'm talking about the spiritual state of your soul. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, you are in a state of conflict. Now, the second chair, these people have said yes to Jesus. They, they are on their way to heaven. Absolutely. But this chair is kind of in and out. Sometimes they apply the principles of the word of the Lord, and sometimes they don't. How many of you remember this chair? What's the name of this chair? Compromise. Compromise. Very good. This chair is compromise. And then this chair over here is commitment. Commitment. These are the people who have definitely said yes to Jesus. It's kind of an, I'm, an all, I'm all in mentality. It doesn't mean they're perfect. No one in this chair is perfect. In fact, they don't even make chairs for perfect people because perfect people just don't exist it's not about being perfect here. It's about motivations of the heart. Are you leaning into Jesus? Are you wanting to be better? Are you pursuing him? Are you in partnership with him? Or do you just view him as a heaven prime where you can get what you want when you want it? And and on the back of compromise, by the way, I could have called this chair commitment also. It's just a competing commitment with chair number one. You see, Compromise is the fact that some days we're committed to Jesus, other days we're committed to self, highly committed to self. That, that's really all that sin is, by the way. It's a self-centered nature where we try to make a way for ourselves rather than expect God to do that for us. So in the chair of commitment, I, I really want my life to be known for my finances to be committed to the Lord, my emotions to be committed to the Lord, my physical health to be committed to the Lord, my, I don't know, did I say mental health? Mental health to be committed to the Lord. But one very important area that I want fully surrendered to the Lord is my marriage, my marriage. I want to talk to you today about marriage because it is, it is fundamental in the health of not only our homes, but our society. You see, I believe that God created the institution of marriage as a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ who believes that the Word of God is not only the inspired Word of God, but it is the inerrant Word of God, meaning there are no mistakes in this thing we call the Bible. Then I understand that there was not a legislature that created marriage. There was not a Neanderthal man who was lonely that created marriage. God himself created marriage. And that's good news for us. It's good news for us because the creator of marriage has all the insight we need to have complete healing and a life of flourishing in marriage. Can I get a good amen from all of you here today? Way back in the time of Malachi, that's where I want our text. to point to today. I don't really need that, but I'm afraid if I leave it, I'm going to trip. So, Okay. In the time of Malachi, uh, the temple was filled with spiritual seekers who were asking God to, you know, do something for them on their behalf. They really wanted spiritual breakthrough and um, something had gone wrong for them. They, They wasn't sure what it was. They couldn't put their finger on it. They couldn't figure it out. And their story is hidden way back in the book of Malachi before the New Testament. If you'll turn with me, it's in chapter two. And here Israel is enduring hard times and it seems like God is very far from them. Their crops seem to be failing. Their kids aren't making straight A's in class. Um, All kinds of things are going wrong for them. And just like good children of Abraham, the Jews bring their wives to the temple, and they're all crying on the altar, asking God for answers. Like they're having a very moving moment in the temple with tearful prayers, and the offering plates are getting filled up, and... They're offering many sacrifices because they're ready for a change. But then Malachi shows up. Malachi shows up, and and he lets them know that this has nothing to do with your crops, has nothing to do with your kids. In Malachi 2, 13-14, it says, You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Now, let me back up and just quickly paint this picture. These people have their lives that are all jacked up. They're in the temple. They're crying. They're, they're needing breakthrough, desperate for breakthrough. And then Malachi, the prophet, shows up and he says, hey, you're, you're crying, but God's not hearing you. And they respond, well, why not? And, and I imagine the shock on their faces whenever Malachi describes this next issue in verse 14. You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, God in this moment has taken up the role of being witness, interrupting their impressive church service, moving moment, crying out before the Lord, filling the offering plates, and he says, hey, the problem with your life isn't about crops. It's not about your kids. It's not about your giving. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about your serving. The problem is you're being unfaithful to your wife. You feel like God is far from you? This is the problem, he's saying. You're unfaithful to your wife. Malachi goes on to say in verse 16 that the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. So be on guard, do not be unfaithful. God hates divorce for a couple of reasons. Now listen, if you've been divorced or in the middle of a divorce, thinking about divorce, thinking about divorce, come see me. But if you're in the middle of divorce, going through divorce, I mean, You can come see me too, but let me just release right now any guilt and shame that may be trying to stir up in this room. Because this sermon is not a bunch of thou shalt nots. This sermon is about how faithful God is even when. And so I hope to give you some freedom today and some breakthrough in whatever situation that you're currently walking through. You know why God hates divorce? God hates divorce because no one wins in a divorce. Oh, sure, in the divorce decree, someone may win the kids, may win the house, may win the car, may win the money, but no one wins in divorce. No one wins. There, There is not a winner. There's so much pain. I mean, you probably know someone who has been through divorce and you know the trauma that it creates inside of their life whenever they're processing that, and it can take years to overcome the effects of divorce. This is one reason why God hates divorce. Another reason God hates divorce is because divorce is the fruit of a seed of disloyalty. Let me say that one more time. Divorce is the fruit of the seed of disloyalty. So I want to talk to you this morning about spiritual breakthrough in our marriages but really, I could probably funnel this sermon into two words, and you could go home and go ahead and eat. It's called absolute loyalty. You want spiritual breakthrough in your marriage? We, as a, as, a, as a body of people, as a body of believers, we have to come to the place where our marriage contains absolute, that's 100% loyalty. Not 99.999, but 100% loyalty. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Over the years, I've had the, hmm, I want to call it honor, but hopefully you understand where I'm coming from. I've had the honor of meeting with marriages in crisis and talking with husbands and wives and uh the problems range from all kinds of things marital unhappiness to marital unfaithfulness to strife anger issues addiction issues all all kinds of things that impact marriage however it all funnels down at the end of the day to one simple problem and it's an out of control inner being all conflict in marriage funnels down to out of control inner being, an unguarded spirit. Proverbs 25:28 paints a picture to us or for us of what happens when we have an unguarded spirit. You know, an unguarded spirit does whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants to whoever it wants. And in Proverbs 25, 28, it says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So a city without walls is totally indefensible against anything that seeks to enter, to overthrow, to conquer, or to control it. So, my goal in the next 20 minutes with you. Is to help your marriage become a city with walls, a city that is guarded not only by the Spirit of God, but with your own eyes so that you know when the enemy is trying to come against your marriage. Now, for us, for our time together today, I've asked um, a special guest to help me with this because Lord knows you can't just have a man talking about marriage. You need a whoa, man. Please help me. Welcome to the platform, my wife, your pastor, Pastor Carrie Rose. You brought your glasses. Everyone, when you came in today, you did get glasses. Now, let me just tell you, we have about four or five points today. Some of them will be a bit uncomfortable. And so I wanted to provide you an opportunity to escape the conversation. At any point, if there's something you don't like, if you don't want your spouse to know you're sitting in the room, just cover your eyes. They won't nudge you. They won't look. make eye contact. If you just want to listen without having any eye contact from the pastors, kids... Just cover cover your eyes. You can certainly do that. I provided them.
1: And then when he actually starts talking about your spouse, you can take your glasses and go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, that we're, not gonna that. we're, not, <laughs> we're not going to do that.
0: We're not. We're not going to give any over-the-eye looks at anyone. No. Well, Carrie, we're talking about marriage, and I think it's a good week to do that because you and I, this week, are celebrating 25 years of marriage. I've made it wonderful, haven't I? You have. I have. have. Wow. Most, mostly. Mostly. We've been married 25 years happily, about what, 23, 22? No, I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a joke. Anyway, I, we can't possibly unpack 25 years in the next 15, 20 minutes. But there are some things that we need to talk about um, that can help people find significant breakthrough in their marriage. Do you want to start us off with... Number one.
1: Sure. Number one, restrict your life to the never ever box. Restrict your life to the never ever box. There has to be some things
0: in our life that are absolutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. We live in a world that is just so fluid and ethereal and mystical. We don't have any absolutes. But the reality is Joshua had an absolute. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think there needs to be some never ever boxes in our life. You want to say something?
1: Well, the other day I was reading about how so many people enter into marriage and they have this fairy tale idea of what that should look like and it's not very realistic. And you know, partly due to the fact that we're watching all these Disney shows, Hallmark movies. I love Hallmark movies. Love, love, love them because they always have a happy ending, right? There's always some weird thing that happens, but then it's just like this beautiful story that unfolds and and so we we grow up just watching those kinds of things and thinking, you know, when my prince shows up or my princess comes around, it's just going to make life all the worthwhile. And the truth is that marriage takes a lot of work. A lot of work and a lot of commitment.
0: It does. Yeah. Um I think you know, speaking of fairy tale, I just want to give a shout out right now to all the single people in the room because Probably you are my biggest audience today. Like, you are the reason I'm speaking this message. Yes, we've got a lot of married people in the room, but we've got a lot of of married people that are, like, in patterns already. I want to speak to the single people to say, you have an opportunity to learn this stuff before you create patterns and systems in your relationships that then create a hole that you have to climb out of. And so when, when you hear, oh, we're talking about marriage, it doesn't apply. I'm 13. It applies. Yeah. Like it's important for the 13-year-olds, for the 17-year-olds, for the 22-year-olds, for the 38 and single-year-olds. Like It really matters that we understand how God views marriage and what he he says about it. The never, ever, ever box for us was the D word. We we didn't do this in the beginning of our marriage. We kind of made threats about divorce. We want to talk about that? Yeah.
1: I mean, early on, um, we would get really heated in the moment and we were having communication issues. And so I remember there was different ways that we would kind of threaten each other, like. Um, like, for example, for me, I didn't want to use the D word. So I would say, love it or leave it, baby. Yeah. and With it was, sass. It was the love same it thing. Love it or leave it, baby. <laughs> it, was, it was the same thing. I just used a different type of phrase. And so we, we, you know, through through some counseling and learning to communicate better, we learned to not say that word whichever which way it could be, because, you know, we all have used different words like I'm done. I'm through. I'm out. You know, this is too hard and this is too difficult. You know, whatever it might be. You might or even the, the, even the infamous,
0: maybe this was a mistake.
1: Yeah. You know, that's yeah. just
0: threatening divorce.
1: Right. Here's the thing. Once you make that commitment to your spouse in front of God, it's a commitment he's holding you to. It, it is the right one for you. Like, I think sometimes we go into marriage thinking, oh, well, it's hard. Maybe I picked the wrong person or I chose the wrong person. No, you didn't. You said I do to that person. That person is the person for you. That is the commitment before God. You're stuck forever, guys, forever.
0: <laughs> there, there actually have been conversations in my bedroom with my spouse where one of us has said, listen, we're married forever. Yeah. Do we want to be happy? happily married forever are we going to work through this or are we going to be unhappily married forever huh. because the married forever isn't an option for us right. the only option is are we going to be happily married forever or are we going to be unhappily stuck together I have, forever
1: i have this aunt and uncle you guys that whenever <laughs> whenever i go home to visit i am i just leave their home so sad Because they have been married for, I don't know how many years, probably 40-something years, but they sleep in separate bedrooms, they don't talk to one another, and they're still married. And I think, why? Why would you choose to stay so unhappily married that way? Like, when there is a better way. Like, God has promised us abundant life in every area of our lives if we follow certain principles that he's laid down for us. We can have abundant life in our marriage um, we can have abundant life with our children. Yeah. Like, there's just principles that he has set in place not to hurt us or to restrict us, but actually to help us reach that abundant life.
0: You know, the Bible very clearly talks about the power of our words. Another never, ever box for us has always just been, and, and maybe we haven't, maybe, maybe we, we've crossed the line on some rare occasion, but for the most part, we don't say hurtful things to one another right. that's going to create long-term damage. Yeah, like you know that's actually a choice that you have to do that, right? I know that you think, oh, they're pushing my button so much it just flows out of me. No, what's in your heart is flowing out of you. You can actually create some a different story by putting things in your heart before that moment of crisis in your relationship.
1: I was thinking of Carrie
0: and I. Yeah, go ahead. That
1: song that we we would sing when we were little: "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me." That is such a lie. Lie. And it's not even biblical. Like, and we would sing that as kids all the time, over and over, when someone would say something hurtful to us. But the whole reason why we were singing it is because we were hurt by it right it hurt us it stung and you know the bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue and you have the power to kill someone with your words or to bring life to them and our words are so important and so in the heat of marriage when conflict happens that's where you have to guard your tongue all the more you have to just really protect what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Carrie and I went to counseling. We were four years married or uh-huh. something like that. We, I mean, yeah. we were on the edge of divorce. I was going to file for, not because she was the problem. I was just running from what God is calling me to be as a man. And we were having massive communication yeah. issues. So I was filing for divorce. We ended up going to counseling. And uh, the counselor, you want to tell that story? You probably remember it better than I Yeah, the counselor,
1: it was like our third time there with him, and he looked at both of us, and he said, you know, I've been doing this for a really, really long time. And he said, I actually know when a couple walks through the door whether or not they're going to make it just from the first conversation I have with them. And we were like, what? And he was like, yeah, I've been able to just point it out right from the beginning. And he said, I knew from my first meeting with the both of you that you were going to make it. You were going to be just fine. And he said, a lot of it has to do with the words that come out of your mouth. And, you know, Trey and I look back at that moment, and, and we realize that even in the heat of the moment, in complete dysfunction where we weren't communicating, we weren't on the same page, we weren't bashing one another in counseling. Right. Like, we were still being very respectful of one another. And that was just something that we did, and that was just who we were. As as a couple.
0: I remember that and that was the guy that we went to counseling for like a year or more. Yeah, did. But do you remember the first guy we went to counseling mm-hmm. with? Oh, he was he was a quack, man. Yes. We sit there <laughs> and he starts like we tell him our issues mm-hmm. and he starts bashing me and I'm like just sitting there and then he starts saying bad things about Carrie and I'm like, oh no, uh uh-uh. uh. No, she's not like that. And, like, I start, I'm in marriage counseling because I want to divorce her. And then I have to defend her to our counselor. We get in the car, and I'm like, this man's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You're not that bad. And it's funny. Yeah,
1: it was really crazy because he actually helped us in a weird kind of way.
0: Yeah. All right, we got to move on because we're running out of time. All right, point number two. Point number two, relinquish every competing person, activity, or goal. This is what I would call emotional loyalty. Um, we have to make sure that the spouse in our mind and in our heart is number one. Yes. Listen, I don't, I, this may offend you. And if, if so, I'm okay with that. Uh, but if you bring kids into the marriage, your new spouse, the moment you say I do trumps the kids that you bring into the marriage. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to have a godly marriage that is first and brings security and safety to all of the kids under your roof, the spouse has to be number one in your life and in your heart. You don't get to say, I'm sorry, my kids are first, or my career is first, or my feelings are first. Your spouse, if you want to have a healthy marriage, God's way, your spouse has to be first. Yeah. I remember when we first, our first date, I I was driving an old car. It was an 80 something car. What was the car? A Buick Buick Regal. Yeah. And we get in the car and we're double dating. My sister Sherry is with a guy I'm trying to hook her up with. Sorry, Chris. I'm I'm glad she chose you. But (laughs) she was with this guy, Michael Downs, who's my best friend. I'm thinking, man, we could just do life together. That'd be awesome. And they didn't like each other. Um, but Carrie and I did, and my car broke down on, on the first date. We were somewhere in the hills of Austin, and we had to walk to someone's house to use their landline to get help. And I started thinking just over the, the time of our lifespan, how things have changed. When we first got married, we actually could go to dinner and just have each other sitting at the table, like just focused on one another. But now today there's so much competition with social media and texting and our phones and your work won't let you have a dinner with your spouse. Do you know what I mean? Like I sit down with my spouse now and if we bring our phones, the whole world is at the table with us. And so we have to get better about creating moments where it's just she and me your spouse and you relinquish every competing person, activity or goal. Talk about boundaries real quick.
1: So one of the things we've noticed is when we meet with several couples is that boundaries always comes up as a topic where the spouse, you know, one spouse doesn't think the other one should be going out to lunch with coworkers of the opposite sex or riding in the vehicle with them or having phone conversations on a regular basis with the other, with the other sex and, um, and so that becomes a conflict, and, you know, I, I just really, we believe that you should set those boundaries right up front, and they sh- there should be boundaries in your marriage for those things because here's the thing. The enemy wants to come and steal, kill, and destroy your marriage. Like that first and foremost. Like that, That's right. that is why God created us, right, to have communion with him and with each other. And so he wants to destroy the family unit, and if we don't guard and protect that, he's going to get a foothold in there, even where you least expect it. And so we have to have those boundaries in place. And I know that that a lot of times that can just be a real heated um, conflict in the marriage.
0: I think we have to be careful sharing our needs, our deepest desires, our childhood wounds, our intimate or innermost thoughts with just any person. Because God has created us so that our intimate conversations create emotional bonding, And if we're not careful, that person at work, the cubicle cubicle next to us, we can offload all of our heart's desires to them and then not actually do that to our spouse in the evening when we get home. And we're not giving the marriage relationship an opportunity to flourish. All right, slide number three, point number three. This is where I'm going to pull out some glasses here. Uh, To have a breakthrough in your marriage,
1: we need to... Restore your spirit with repentance and obedience.
0: Yes, that's not where I should have my glasses.
1: Nope. I was wondering where you were going with that.
0: I was ahead. <laughs> There's nothing right. that I need to hide from about repentance and I obedience.
1: Was I was like, is nope, this
0: something I just need to make that clear <laughs> right now. Spiritual loyalty in the first chair. Listen. Stop it. It was an accident. Okay. So spiritual loyalty does affect marriage. Many of us think that this is in its own separate drawer and that my spirituality doesn't impact their marriage. And you think, well, as long as I'm communicating healthfully and as long as I'm, you know, showing up and having dinner with my family or we're paying the bills on time or we're dreaming together, uh, that doesn't create uh, marriage wholeness. You have to be spiritually fit for your marriage to be spiritually well. Carrie, you want to talk about spiritual disciplines as an individual versus together?
1: So I think it's, it's so beautiful whenever you're a married couple and you get to have Bible study together, pray together and all of that. But, but the truth is, is that your spouse, his relationship with God or her relationship with God doesn't determine your relationship with God. Like it, it rubs off, it affects it, right? But Um, We have to have that own individual personal relationship with God and that time with him is so important. He has to be first individually in our lives um, in order for our marriage to be what God has called that to be. And I I just see so, so many times where, um, you know, someone is really strong on fire for God and then they meet up with someone who's kind of... kind of okay spiritually, they're they're in church. Sometimes they're going to be in church all the time now that they're with you, and then they get married, and then before you know it, that person that was so turned on for God is no longer in church at all, and their spouse has become God in their life, and that's just such a dangerous place to be. And so um, I just think it's so important that we find that time with God individually, with God ourselves, especially if we're single and we're not quite um, – married yet, or even dating, we have to find that relationship with him and make that first and priority in our, in our lives.
0: Let me see if I can describe this in two minutes or less without it being just super convoluted. Grace is that thing which covers our sin, right? We we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? We are saved by grace, um, not of ourselves, lest we boast, However, grace is not just unmerited favor. Grace is also the manifest power of God to accomplish in us what we could not accomplish on our own. And proof of that is when you say yes to Jesus, his grace covers your sin, but then his grace moves you from an orphan to a son. Right? So grace is not just the covering of our sin. Grace is the empowerment to change. Repentance and obedience in a life that is filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit versus walking by the flesh, means that as the Holy Spirit reveals something in my life that needs to shift, needs to be transformed into His image, I repent from it. Repentance is not, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know. Use Well, you use your own example. You make a mistake. You say, oh, I'm sorry. And you find out next week you do the same thing again. That's not repentance. That's regret. Repentance is, God, I offer this to you, and I turn from that which I know is not of you, and I fix my eyes on that which I know is of you, and I step in that direction. And by the way, his grace covers the choice that I made, but then his grace empowers me to be a brand new Christian, right? He makes all things new in its own time. So... If I want to live in the first chair in my marriage individually, I have to constantly take inventory. Now, this doesn't mean I'm going to hell, by the way. Just because I make a mistake doesn't mean I'm going to hell or I've fallen out of grace. It's not, not that. But God is wanting to develop in me a nature of himself that then pours into the marriage. Now, pretend you've never heard this before. I'm going to put these glasses on for the next point. That we're going to talk about
1: the next point is rekindle your sex life with godly intimacy
0: rekindle your sex life with godly intimacy for all the teens in the room sitting next to your parents right now i just want to offer you my sincere condolences (laughs) Um, we're going to keep it clean
1: (laughs) and keep it holy they look so uncomfortable
0: (laughs) yes it's true that's how you got here son so i'm sorry (laughs) that this is uncomfortable, but it is is godly. Listen, if you look at Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden, God made them to be one, uh, both emotionally, spiritually, sexually, and in fellowship with him. It was a beautiful thing. God said, it is good, right? Then the devil comes in and he provides confusion and they bite the forbidden fruit and sin enters the world. If you look at what the devil did, he did a couple of things worth noting today. He started out by saying, did God really say not to eat of this tree? Well, if God really did say that, maybe he said that because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. So you see the devil right now first is putting questions on God's authority. Did God say what you think he said and did he really mean it and why? So he questions authority. But then we see in the garden, God's walking in and Adam and Eve have made clothes for themselves because they were naked. And they tell the Lord that they say, we were naked. So we covered ourselves. And God said, who told you you were naked? You see, Satan came after God's identity and their identity. But then the very next thing he tried to destroy was their sexuality. You think sexuality is not important? It's important it speaks to the very nature of who God is. You see, sexuality is actually God's gift to himself. He created sex because the one thing that he really desired from the beginning of time was family. And that was going to be birthed through the sacredness of a sexual intimate relationship. But sexuality is not just God's gift to himself. Carrie, it's another gift. What
1: yeah, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 6:18 through 20 explains it so well. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So sexuality is God's gift to Himself, but it's also a gift to yourself. You know, we hear all the time: save yourself for your spouse, right? You then you'll be the perfect gift for your spouse. But what about that spouse that hasn't saved themselves for you? Like maybe you've saved yourself for your spouse, but they didn't save themselves for you. Does that, you know, how, how does that how does that work, right? When you think about that. Um the, the point is, is that when we choose to keep ourselves pure before god it's a gift for ourselves like we are doing ourselves such a gift by by keeping ourselves pure um, when i think about people that come in that that talk to us and they have not done that or they are struggling in sexual sin of some sort like pornography or whatever it's sin against themselves right because that's what the Word of God says. Sexual immorality is sin against your own body. And what that does is it creates a degrading self-esteem, insecurity. Um, We just see that on them. There's a lack of confidence in in who they are. Their identity is under attack at that point. And the enemy, that's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy our identity um, because then we're not whole in Christ. We can't be whole for our spouse. And so that's his whole thing is to destroy who we are in Christ.
0: The enemy very much wants to get into your marriage bed. Yeah. He does. And he is in so many of our lives. Whether you're married or single, he's finding a way to climb yeah. in. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says that marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. Even as a single person, whether you're 13, 14, seven, whatever it is, you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to keep marriage sacred. And the enemy is trying to sneak in through pornography, convincing us, oh, it's just for a season. Listen, once you get married, if you're addicted to pornography, it doesn't go away because you suddenly have a physical person to meet your needs. It, It attaches itself to every fiber of your being. Now, fortunately that's not something that Carrie and I have struggled with, but I'll tell you the hard, cold facts is this. One in two pastors currently are struggling with pornography. Currently. Pastors. People who are trying to rightly divide the word of God. People who are doing marriage counseling. People that get on, and I'm not saying that to put down pastors because that happens to not be the thing that I wrestle with. I'm saying it's a problem. Mm -hmm. 68% of men that regularly attend church, 68, seven out of 10 men in the church are currently addicted to pornography. And by the way, this is not just a male disease. One in three, 30% of ladies are addicted to pornography. This is a real thing. It's a real way the enemy is trying to wiggle his way into our definition of marriage, our definitions of, uh, of oneness and unity sexually with one another.
1: I think it, one, of the, um, one of the lies that we've heard over and over is, well, if my spouse is okay with it then, and I'm okay with it, then it's okay.
0: We've actually, we've actually lost friends over that. We yeah. tried to counsel yeah. friends that both wanted to be a part And wanted pornography in their marriage bed. And we took them to scripture. And so this is is not God's best for you. And they shut down the relationship because they valued pornography more than the truth of the word of the Lord in their life. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's good. That was it. Oh. Well, here's what I think. Um, Statistically, less than 2% of churches speak on pornography. Yeah. Less than 2% of churches ever say the word masturbation. Masturbation with lustful thoughts is sin. We talk about grace. Listen, grace goes higher than the law. And the law... The law said if I have sex with another person, I'm committing adultery. But grace says if I even look at a person and have fantasy thoughts in my mind, I've committed adultery with them. Grace isn't really our excuse to do whatever we want. Grace is our empowerment to step into the holiness and the purity that God has called for us. And that's why I say to you, it can be done. That's why I say that there there is hope for us. The church may not speak about it enough, but there is freedom from it. I want to spend time. Maybe our team can come on since we're out of time.
1: And and if there, you know, are people struggling with pornography or sexual immorality in, in your marriage or even outside of marriage, um, we have some great resources, great resources that can help you. And, you know, we always say those things that are kept hidden are the enemy's playground. And so the more you keep those things hidden, the more the enemy's going to use it and against yourself. And That's so good. we just encourage you to bring those things to the light and get help. Because <laughs> the truth is there's so many people struggling with it. You're not going to be the first. I promise you won't be the first and you won't be the last. But be the person that gets set free. That's completely so set free.
0: You know, there's a spiritual principle at work here. And um, it is simply this, the things that we allow to stay hidden in our life gain power and traction in our world. If you remember, Jesus said, don't pray like the Pharisees do where you stand out on the street corner and lift your voice and make a big public display of yourself. That is their reward. That's the reward that they're going to get. You see, their prayer lost power because they wanted it for the world to see. And God also says in our giving, for example, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give in secret so that your father who sees what is done in private will reward us openly. There is a systematic theological presupposition, big words, meaning God has a pattern of the things that are hidden gain power. So what are you gonna let stay hidden in your life? The seeds of disunity, the seeds of sexual immorality, the the clicks on the computer at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. I know it's hard to bring it to the light, but when you do, then it loses its power. Rather than trying to hide all the negative things that we're doing, why not hide the word of God in our heart and let that gain power? Why not hide the joy and the peace of God in our heart and let that gain power? You know, we don't have currently a ministry specifically geared for recovery but I feel that brewing I feel like that we need to be a church that offers recovery to people recovery for people that are addicted to pornography recovery for people that have any kind of addiction in their life I I believe that God has a plan of recovery for our lives but it but it starts by laying it out on the table and saying God I know this is embarrassing but I want to strip it of its power by bringing it to the light so will you stand to your feet this morning? I do believe we're standing on holy ground. Carrie, will you come up here. I want us to pray. If you're standing next to your spouse or your kids, will you just take their hands? any any of your family members? I want you to pray over our families and pray that that there is an increased desire to bring things out into the light, to find healing and recovery in areas of our world.
1: Father, we just thank you for your word. God, we just recognize, Lord, that your word is is not to keep things from us or to bring harm to us, but Father, it's for our protection. And Father, you have set things in your word to just guide us and direct us. And so Father, I just pray that our eyes and our ears would be open to receive that. That our hearts would receive what you have for us today, God. That we would not turn away from it, Father, and and resist what your word says. But just embrace it, Father. Just bravely embrace it and and bring to the light those those areas in our lives, God, that have us under bondage. Because, Father, anything that holds us under bondage separates us from you. Yes, God. And so, Father, we just ask that that would be severed right now in the name of Jesus, Father. That, Lord, those that are struggling, God, that you would just pour your healing oil into their hearts, God, that you would purify their minds, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, and that they would just be brave enough to take that next step, God, that step that needs to be taken to to break every stronghold, Father. We thank you, Lord, for purity in our marriages, Father. We thank you that you strengthen our marriages, God, as we strengthen our relationship with you individually, Father, you strengthen the marriage unit together, God. We just thank you for that, Father, right now. In Jesus' mighty name,
0: amen. Amen. Amen.